Uh, we are in Hebrews 10. We've got this Sunday and next Sunday to wrap up the Hebrew series, land it, and get ready to take off in our Revelation series. I'm already hearing a lot of anticipation from you. I'm a little bit excited myself. I've preached texts from Revelation, but never all the way through. And so I'm excited to do that with you. Um, but we've got two more sermons here in Hebrews. We're going to be in uh, the end of Hebrews 10 and all of 11 today. And then we'll finish out Hebrews next week. And so let me explain to you kind of where we're, where we're going. Today we're going to be talking about um, really the connection between faith and, and works. This connection between what I believe and what I do. And so um, Hebrews 11 is one of um, probably my favorite chapters in the Bible. I love Hebrews 11. Um, a beautiful chapter. Uh, story after story from the Old Testament showing how men and women who believed and trusted God live that out in their lives through through obedience and through trusting and through, and through following God's direction. And there's so much about Hebrews 11 that I love. But it wasn't until I preached through this series that I, I really saw the full connection between what I think the author was actually doing in chapter 11 and the, 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 uh, the first century recipients of the letter. He actually starts at the end of chapter 10, I think, setting them up to understand 11. So the end of chapter 10 is where we're going to start in verse 26 in just a minute. Let me just talk a little bit about... Um, theological misconceptions, especially here in the Bible Belt, um, we, we grow up in, in a, a, a works-based culture, inside and outside of the church, works-based, that worth and value is in how hard you work, how well you perform, um, whether that's at your job or that's just in the, the sphere of morality, that who you are is determined by how hard you work. And that that mindset has infiltrated the church as well to the point where we get a really thick works-based theology that says this, that I get to go to heaven because I'm good. Now, we don't preach that, but somehow that message is being preached because there's so many folks that I talk to. When we talk about uh, eternal life and, and what gets us there, um, the, one of the most common answers I get from non-believers is, well, I, I'm a pretty good person. Well, that answer reveals that that person is relying on what? Their good works to be enough, to earn their way, to impress God that he might open the doors and let them in. And so somehow that message is, is going out from, from either our pulpits or from our actions in our life. And so think of it like this. If we think about life as a tree, um, and the soil is what nourishes the tree. If you look at the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, what you have is an, this idea that the soil of your life, if the soil is obedient, that then gives life to blessing. So if you are, if you are obedient your soil is obedient, then what will come out of your life is blessings. Obey and you will be blessed. That's the old covenant. right? It's a works-based system. However, in the new covenant, in the gospel, what we have is what? Believe and you will be blessed. And so the soil of obedience has been traded for the soil of belief or faith. And then what the New Testament teaches is that when our, the roots of our lives dig deep into the foundation of what we believe, then what comes out of our lives is beautiful fruit. And one of those fruits is obedience. You see, there's a significant difference between works-based faith and faith-based works. Works-based faith says what? I will be accounted righteous. I will be led into heaven by how hard I work. Works-based. Faith-based work says what? I get into heaven because I believe. And because I truly believe what I say, I believe, then what comes out of my life are these beautiful fruits. Peace, patience, kindness, joy, self-control, good works come out of my life. And so what we're going to be looking at today then is this relationship between what I believe and then the evidence 
that I actually believe it. So starting in verse 26, we've been through so much in Hebrews, the, the author begins to shift to a personal challenge to the original recipients of the letter. And I want to read it like it's coming right at me. And so what he does first is he challenges their faith. He challenges their salvation. And so here's where we start in verse 26. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if that's not a warning from the Bible, right? I don't know what is. If we go on just deliberately sinning, deliberately, right, with our fist in the air, in obstinance towards God, saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. We go on living that way, then what we should expect in the end is judgment. That's a harsh warning. Now, if we're not careful, we'll read into these verses that somehow you could lose your salvation. So, in other words, if you become a Christian, you get saved, you've been forgiven, you start off on the right track, you're, 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 you're obedient, you're doing all the right things, and somewhere down the road you become, begin to become disobedient, then how somehow God will remove your salvation, there's no way to get in. That's not at all what the author's saying here, because look at where he goes next, because really what he's doing is he's challenging them in the sincerity of their faith. And so he says, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, before we finish out this personal plea, so here's how we're going to handle this morning. We're going to start there with the warning that we're going to hear ourselves from God. Saying to us, if you go on deliberately living your lives the same way you lived them before you said that prayer, if you go on doing everything the same, there's no heart change, there's no, no tangible expression of your faith in your lives, then it's as good as you not being saved. Maybe you're actually not saved because it doesn't appear that you believe what you say you believe. There's the warning. Now what happens is Hebrews 11 is this beautiful summary of the Old Testament. Men and women, starting with Abraham, we'll look at Abraham specifically, who believed God. Now, these weren't perfectly moral people. Rahab gets listed in there, I think, on purpose. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. So men and women are listed not for their perfect obedience, but because they truly believed God at his word, there was a difference in their lives. So let's, let's get started in chapter 11, then we're going to come back and finish 10. So starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 11, this beautiful expression of what faith is. So there's been a warning. If this is the way your life looks, afterwards you may not be saved. In other words, you may not truly believe what you say you believe. Then in verse 1 of chapter 11, the author goes ahead and says, here's what faith actually is. Faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. There's three really important words here in this particular translation. Assurance, conviction, and commendation. So let's just back up. Let's take it from, the, from, from being commended and go backwards. So being commended in this particular text is talking about our salvation. God looks at you and he commends you as being perfectly righteous. He lets you in. So how did the people of the Old Testament get commended that way? How did they receive their righteousness? Well, the explanation is right before that. Faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. 
Now, the word assurance here depends on what translation you're in. Um, it can be translated foundation or substance. Foundation or substance or assurance. I think all three are implied here. Faith is. Faith has substance. It's foundational. It's the soil that, that nourishes our lives. Faith is foundationally the substance of our lives. The King James Version says now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So the second word conviction could also be translated evidence. Here's the point. Faith is not simply saying that you believe something. It's not. Evidently, faith has substance to it. Faith isn't just a notion. It's not just an idea. It's not just fire insurance in case God decides to take me out. Like Faith has a substance to it. It's not just an ambiguous concept or a thought in the mind. There are, there's, a, there's a way to, to measure faith. There's a way to see what's going on. That where f- true faith is, true saving faith, there is substance, there is evidence of the, of the convictions. Now, Jesus teaches about the relationship between faith and works all over the place. In one place in uh, Sermon on the Mount, he's warning against um, those who would come in, false teachers, and he says, you'll know them by what? You'll know them by their fruit. Saying what? What's on the inside will give way on the outside, and you'll be able to tell who the false prophets are, the false teachers, versus the genuine believers in Jesus, because there'll be a fruit that comes out of their life. Uh, he goes on in Matthew 13 and does a beautiful parable with four soils, different soils, and the seed falls on the soil. One's a hard path, and so the seed doesn't go uh, into the soil. The next one's rocky, and so the roots don't go down very deep. And the next one, uh, these, it springs up, and then there's these thorns and thistles that choke it out. But then there's a fourth soil, a good soil. And how do we know the good soil? What does Jesus say? Because it will produce fruit. Now, does everybody produce the same amount and exactly the same fruit? No, because he even says what? Some, like 30, some 60, some 100. So like, there'll be, so we can't get in this mindset that you need to look like me and I need to look like you. And if, if, if your morality hasn't reached my morality, you're not there. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about as progress. There will be a tangible expression of what you believe that comes out of your life. Um, Jesus very simply says in the, uh, the parable of building the house on the sand versus building on solid rock, what does he say? Every man who hears these words of mine and what? Does them. Will be like the wise man who builds his house on the solid rock. In contrast, he who hears these words and what? Doesn't do them. Will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. When the storms of life come, they'll tear, it'll tear the whole thing down. So Jesus is even making that connection between hearing the gospel and believing it. And when you truly believe it, there will be a doing component to your faith, a substance to it, an evidence that you believe what you say you believe. Uh, Probably no more um, notorious biblical authors than James on this subject. Uh, James, is he's hard and fast going after works, isn't he? I love how he says it in uh, James 2. He talks about faith without works. He says, can this kind of faith save you? And what James does is uses this kind of this metaphor illustration between living faith and dead faith. And he says, what about the demons? They, they believe and they shudder, right? So what's the difference in the faith of demons versus the faith of a true Christian? One's alive and one's dead. One produces good fruit and the other one, what? Death. And so James just asks, if there's no 
works coming out of your life, no evidence that you truly believe what you say you believe, then can that faith save you? Are you really saved? Saying the same thing I believe this Hebrews author is saying. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at Abraham specifically in Hebrews 11 as an example. And we're going to note some of the things, some of the fruits that should be expressed out of our lives if we truly believe. Now different levels, right? We all have our different struggles, different struggles with the flesh, different struggles with sin, different spiritual giftings. We have the same Holy Spirit empowering us to progress, but we're not shooting, like we're not expecting perfection, but we are expecting in each believer's life a sense of progress, growth. If the roots of our life are truly embedded in faith, then you're going to begin to see over time, right, slow but surely progress. Matter of fact, I would say anytime you see quick progress, be skeptical. Okay, two things are happening if you see quick, quick progress. One, you witness a miracle. And when I say be skeptical, if you acknowledge and it truly is a miraculous, somebody has been set free from an addiction or progress happens immediately, acknowledge God and give him glory. However, if we're not careful, there's a, there's a soil in the parable Jesus taught, right, where, this, where the, the seeds spring up quickly, but because there's no root, what happens? The sun scorches them. And so the idea of sanctification, spiritual growth, it's a slow process. It's like watching a tree grow. You sit out here and you watch a tree day in, day out for the entire growth season. You're going to have a hard time seeing it grow. However... If you'll take a picture of it and then come back next year and take a picture, you'll see growth, right? Slow growth, slow progress over time. So here's what happens uh, in, in Hebrews 11, explaining what genuine saving faith looks like. The, the author of Hebrews points us at Abraham first and foremost. Uh, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. So first and foremost, what we see in Abraham's life as a fruit, as an evidence, as a substance that he trusted and believed God is this. Saving faith leads towards obedience to God. It leads towards obedience to God. Now, was Abraham a perfectly obedient person? Perfectly moral? Go read Genesis. I'm, I'm telling you, like right out of the gate, he begins to, 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 to shrink back. And he's worried about somebody stealing his wife. And so he schemes up this lie to protect his his wife, and he doesn't ultimately in that moment trust God. So we're not looking for perfection, but we do see in Abraham's life progress. By the time he gets to the point where he has a child and God says, take your child up on the mountain and sacrifice him, Abraham goes. And so it's not a perfect morality or a perfect obedience, but you do see this progressive obedience in Abraham's life. And we have to ask the question, why? Why did Abraham pack up all his stuff Say to his father, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for your willingness to leave all this to me as an inheritance. But I'm taking my family and we're going to follow God. What caused him to do that? He believed God. Period. Belief led to what? Obedience. Now, not a perfect obedience. But ultimately, obedience is really about trust, isn't it? It's about trusting. Um, I have a quote here from a, um, a devotional that, I, that I've been doing recently recently. Um, it's Solid Joys. It's a John Piper devotional. It's just a real short um, 
app on your phone, and it's basically excerpts from Piper Books. And this, this came across on August 18th this week, um, and I just want to read it to you. I think this is profoundly true. Here's the quote. There is only one basic reason why we disobey the commands of Jesus. One basic reason why. It is because we don't have confidence that obeying will bring more blessing than disobeying. Because we don't have confidence that obeying will bring more blessing than disobeying. We do, not, we do not hope fully in God's promise. That's what it's saying. When you see disobedience in my life, in that moment, in that particular event, I am not fully trusting the promise of God to be better than what I want for myself. So ultimately, disobedience is reflective of whether or not I trust God, right? Whether I get angry and frustrated at the way a situation goes down, what am I saying? The situation didn't go down the way I thought it should go down, so I don't trust God here. So I'm going to get angry. I'm going to lash out. I'm going to say harsh things to people I love. And, right? and so what, what ultimately is that saying about my heart? I don't trust God in this moment. So in Abraham's life, we see obedience. The next thing you see is this. He went out. This is the rest of verse 8. He went out not knowing where he was going. Oh, my gosh. It was almost like... God was setting up Abraham and Sarah to have a, have a knockdown drag out, right? I mean, that's the worst thing for marriages, to be traveling somewhere you've never been to and you're not sure how to get there, and both are trying to give their opinion on how to get there and where to turn. And, and, and so Abraham packs up everything. He's got Sarah. And he says, well, let's head out. She says, where are we going? He says, what? I don't know. We're going to have to trust God to show us. What do you mean you don't know? You want me to pack up all my stuff? Where am I going to shower? Where am I going to sleep? Right? Where am I going to go to the bathroom? All these questions. And Abraham, for every one of those questions, had to say, I don't know, but I trust God. And so the second thing we see in Abraham's life is what? Saving faith trusts in the promises of God. Saving faith trusts in the promises of God. Last thing I want to point out here from Abraham's example, verse 10 just kind of an overview of what, what was thematically going on in Abraham's heart and mind as he followed God out into the, the desert and, and made his way through the land and then the sacrifice of, of his son Isaac, all those things, what was going on in his heart and mind. Here's what it was, verse 10. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is who? God. He ultimately wasn't looking for a residence here on earth, so it didn't matter. It didn't matter where God said go, Right? Which, where are we going to be? Are we going to be in the mountains, the desert, the river, the lake? Are we going to have water? All these questions coming up. Are we going to be farmers or ranchers and all these? Didn't matter. Why? Because that's not ultimately where his hope was. His hope was set on a land. His hope was set on a residence that you couldn't find here on earth. And I don't know that he articulated that to Sarah, but ultimately that had to be how he led her. Like, let's don't find our hope, right? Because I'm sure she was asking, is it going to be pretty there? Are we going to be at the beach? We're going to be at the mountains. It's going to be cold. It's going to be hot. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, Sarah. Why? Because that's not where we're putting our hope. Our hope is hanging on something that is eternal. We're looking for and we're longing for a city that God builds, not one that we can build with our hands. So I don't know the answer to that, Sarah. I don't know. But I know this. God has spoken and I trust him. Saving faith has its hope set on eternity. Saving, hope, saving faith has its hope set on eternity. Now we're going to pause for a minute. 
Why is it so significant that we look at the story of Abraham? We're going to just briefly look at a few more stories. But here's what Galatians says about Abraham. That when God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said, Abraham, I'm calling you to go to a land that I will show you. Pack up your things. Leave your father's home. Leave the land of your kindred. Pack it all up and come follow me and go to the land that I will show you. Paul says in Galatians that in that moment, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. And the question is asked, well, how was Abraham saved? Jesus hadn't even died on the cross yet. How's, how, how should we expect to see Sarah or Jacob or Isaac or Joseph in heaven? And, and, and Hebrews 11 answers that question. All of these were commended, counted righteous, saved because what? Because of their faith. They believed God. And how do we know they believe God? Because they didn't just simply put on a t-shirt and say, God spoke and I'm a, I'm a follower of God. There was a tangible expression that came out of their lives. The Old Testament is rich with stories of failure and progress. Men and women hearing God, trusting God, obeying God, and following. Did they follow perfectly? No. Did Moses get to cross over into the promised land? No. But was there progress? Yes. If you continue reading verses 11 through 31, I'll just give you the summary. From Abraham, we go to Sarah. We go to Isaac, we go to Jacob, we go to Joseph, which is where Genesis ends. Genesis 50 is the story of Joseph. Think about Joseph for a minute. He's an heir of this promise. He's in the lineage of Abraham. God's going to build our family to this great nation. He's got these envious, jealous brothers. He's got a dad who plays favorites. They sell him into slavery after they decide not to kill him. That was the original plot. Sell him into slavery. He rises to the top in power. Now his brothers have to come to him and humbly ask for forgiveness. And what does he do? He chooses to forgive his brothers and give glory to God. How did he do that? Why? Why, wasn't he, why didn't he respond with frustration and anger? Wouldn't he have been justified to throw all of his brothers in jail for at least as long as he went? Right? We would look at that and go, yeah, but he didn't. Why? Because he trusted in God. Because he trusted in God, he was able to extend forgiveness. And from Joseph uh, in Hebrews 11, we go on to Moses and we get the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. All these are laid out as stories and examples of men and women who ultimately trusted God with their lives. They believed, and they believed what they said they believed to the point where they followed. After they crossed the Red Sea, and we get to uh, Jericho, Joshua 6, where God says to the people, how crazy is this? Hey, we're going to conquer this city. Here's how we're going to do it. I want you all for the first six days just to march around this city, march around the walls. What? I mean, this kind of sounds like Go to the land that I'm going to show you. What do you mean, march around the walls? Like, we're going to be tired. They're going to see us. They're going to begin, like, painting targets on us. They're going to, right? They're going to see who's going to take out that one. What do you mean, walk around the city for six days? Yeah, and then on the seventh day, walk around seven times, and then I want you to sound the horns of war, and I want you to shout. Like, you're either going to do it or not. There's no, like, halfway, right? Let's just, let's just do this kind of. Like, you're either going to look a fool following God or you're not. And what happened? God was faithful. The story of Rahab is, is she's a prostitute in the city. So, spies are sent in, spies from the people of God to look around and kind of survey. And, and what happens? She hides the spies and keeps them from getting killed. And, and she was commended. She was commended for believing and trusting in God. There's a perfect example. She wasn't condemned for prostitution. She was commended, right, for believing and trusting God. There's a significant difference between works-based faith and faith-based works. 
There's a significant difference between trusting in your own performance, your own ability to be moral, and trusting in what Jesus has done on your behalf, and therefore progressively following after him. Look at the rest of Hebrews 11 with me, just some more summary. These are, these are incredible stories. Look at verse 32, Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? In other words, should I go on? How many more of these stories do I have to give you? What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of. Here we go. You ready? Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, here's what they did through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, received back their dead by, the res- by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in the desert and mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, look at this, though commended through their faith. Why were they commended? Why will we see all these men and women in heaven? Because of their faith. They were all commended through their faith. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What is he saying here? that ultimately what they were putting their hope in is that God would rescue one day. They didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. They had snapshots of the cross in the Old Testament, right? Whenever they were out in the desert and the snakes were, the poisonous snakes were biting the Israelites and killing them and they put the snake on a stick and rose it up in the desert. They, they didn't really fully know what that was, but God was saying what? One day I'm going to raise one up on a stick and when you look at him, you'll be healed. We get all these beautiful snapshots in the Old Testament of this coming rescue. And so did Abraham fully know that Jesus was going to be uh, betrayed and sold out by Judas and denied by Peter, arrested, flogged, nailed to a cross? No, but what did he know? God is going to rescue us. He's going to rescue us. He's promised salvation. And so all the men and women of the Old Testament who truly trusted God with saving faith, even though they didn't have the Gospels and didn't know what it was going to look like, they were commended as righteous. That's why we'll see them there. And all these are put before us today to say what? Faith has a substance to it. If you truly have a conviction inside of you, it will produce substance. It will come out. Now, we're going to go back to Hebrews 10 and finish those last few verses so we can fully get what the author is meaning to do. So we've just seen all these examples of how when you truly believe something, you trust it and you obey. Now, here's what we did in Hebrews 10. He started with a stark warning, right? Let's, let's have a salvation check. If there's an absolutely no life change, there's no progress, there's no fruit coming off, out of your lives, then you need to ask yourselves, have I truly believed? Have I truly experienced saving faith? That's the warning. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come back and he's going to say, but listen, that's not who you are. Let me tell you where I see saving faith in your life. Look at what he says. We're going to start in, back in chapter 10, verse 32. But recall, but recall the former days when, 
after you were enlightened. What is he saying there? Remember where he started with this warning? Those who've heard the gospel. Matter of fact, what he says is, if we go on sinning deliberately, after we receive the knowledge of the truth. And now he's saying, remember when you were enlightened? Remember whenever you received the knowledge of the truth? And after that, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Remember that? Then he goes on in verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What is he pointing at? He's saying, remember the time when you truly trusted in God and you didn't put your hope in what you find here on earth? You see why he points to Abraham as an example? Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the, and the coming one, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by what? Faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love that the author of Hebrews wasn't afraid to do a salvation check here. He's, he's writing to a group of people who are beginning to become discouraged. The fruit of the tree was beginning to, to wither a little bit. Life was beginning to look a little bit bleak. And he's challenging them, saying, listen, let me just challenge you for a minute. Let me just remind you that true saving faith, it has substance and evidence, and it will produce fruit in your lives. And he challenged them. But then what did he do? He came back and said, but now let me remind you who you are. Remember when you were enlightened? Remember how you endured Remember your compassion. So from this, from this example, saving faith produces endurance in hardship, suffering, reproach, and affliction. Saving faith produces endurance. Um, there are a lot of folks in our church right now who are struggling either directly through some type of illness, lack of diagnosis, or have a diagnosis and not a sure treatment, or you know somebody and are praying for somebody who's in that situation. Just, there's just one example. Um, some of you are without a job. Some of you are struggling right now in your job. Some of you are struggling. So like affliction is all over the place in our church. Just because we're Christians, we're not free from affliction. But what's the evidence that we truly believe God? There's endurance. I'm so encouraged. And, it's, and it breaks my heart on one hand to hear your story sometimes when you're going through something hard. But I'm so encouraged to see you endure. What is that endurance? It's fruit of your faith. It's substance. It's evidence that you truly believe what you say you believe. Saving faith produces endurance and hardship. The other thing that we saw here in this example is what? They had compassion. Saving faith yields compassion for those who are suffering. In this particular example, it were, it were the people who were thrown in prison. But I think that's the lesser important point. The point is that their hearts were willing to break for others. And, and so here's maybe a check for some of us today. Where's your, where's your level of compassion right now? Whether it's with your spouse, your children, the people around you, those who are afflicted and suffering. 
What's going on in your heart right now? Are you more prone to get frustrated with people and see them as needy? Or are you more prone for your heart to break for them in a sense of compassion and empathy? Compassion should be the evidences that we believe what we say we believe. And the last thing he mentioned here is what? Saving faith sets its joy on the blessings of God. The example here is in the way things were taken from them. If you look at verse 34, not only did they have compassion for those who were in prison, but look, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That's just a fancy way of saying whenever people came in and they just took your stuff away from you because they wanted to pick on you for being Christians and they trampled over your, uh, your crops, they burned your houses, they, they took things from you. Remember how you joyfully accepted it because you knew the reason why was because you believe in Jesus? What does that reveal about our faith? That our joy isn't contingent on the things here on earth. We don't set our joys on the next move in my job, this next house, the, the tangible things. We see this over and over again in, in Hebrews 11. What? They had their hopes set what? on what? A better city, a city that God himself designed. And here he's pulling out this example for these Christians saying, listen, I know you're struggling right now, but I've seen it in you. I've seen real faith alive in you. I've seen you endure affliction. I've seen your compassion for those who are in prison. And I've seen you even joyfully accept it when people come in and rip your stuff away from you. I've seen the substance and the evidence of your faith. So saving faith sets its joy on the blessings of God, not the blessings here on earth. Now these are just a few examples. I think we could go to Galatians 5 and get some more examples of what our faith should look like tangibly. The point is this, though. It's... Saving faith has substance to it. It produces something. It moves us forward. Saving faith is rooted in belief and conviction in a way that when God calls to go, there's a progressive striving to obey. Is it perfect morality? No, it's not. Is it perfect obedience? No, it's progressive obedience. And what's the difference? Here's maybe one example of, of difference. God comes to you, and he calls you um, to let go of something, and you don't. Either you don't trust God enough, or you don't fully believe that in letting go, you'll be happy. Whatever the reason is, you don't let go. Okay? That, is that obedience or disobedience? Disobedience, right? So further down the road, you realize the foolishness of not responding, and so then you go before God and say, God, listen, here's the thing. I want to acknowledge now. Back then I was foolish. I didn't obey you. I want to confess my sin. I want to repent, and I want to lay it down. That's progressive faith. If we were expecting perfect morality, you have to obey every time, first time, perfectly. But what we're looking for is growth, maturity, from glory to glory, as Paul says in Corinthians. Our lives are changing and being conformed to the image of Jesus. There isn't a person in this room who looks fully like Jesus yet. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, you, I'm just being honest, right? If you get there, I mean, go ahead and say your goodbyes because it's time for you to go. Life here on earth is the working out of becoming more and more like Jesus. There's not a person here, including myself. There's not an elder in our church who is there morally. But what we should see in each other's lives is this progressive, trusting, obeying. And so there's room, I think, as Christians to, to check in on one another, right? This isn't a, a baseball bat. We run around beating people up. 
who we deem are disobeying God, but there's a chance, right, for brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ to come to one and say, listen, can I, man, I can check in on you. I'm just going to kind of speak from appearances. It just looks like from the outside looking in that something's different in your heart. I don't, I don't want to come across as hard or judgmental, and by all means, I, I'm not perfect either. I just want to check in on you, though, because I remember a time when there was fruit coming out of your life. I remember a time when you were excited about what God was doing, and it just seems like that's faded away. And, and I'm just speaking on what I see, but it looks more like you're chasing your own dreams rather than following the will of God for your life. I just need to ask you about it. Are you okay? Like, there's room for that in Christ. Not because we're calling people to perfect morality, but what? We're stirring one another up, as we read last week, to love and good works. We're stirring one another up to follow and to obey and to trust God. There's a significant difference between obeying God because you don't want him to be mad at you and obeying God because you have faith that his ways are better than your ways. Significant difference. Significant difference between obeying God because you don't want him to be mad at you versus obeying God because you believe what he has for you is better. His ways are better than your ways. His wisdom is better than your wisdom. The joy he wants to give you is better than any happiness you could go after or attain on your own. There's a significant difference between works-based faith and faith-based works. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is there should be works and fruit coming out of your life if you truly believe what you say you believe. I want to end by praying for us today and um, two things. One, I think this ultimately was intended to challenge Christians, this particular passage, to awaken, awaken us all, to take a step back, personal inventory, Okay, where is my life right now with God? Am I walking in obedience? Am I pursuing progress? Am I pursuing maturity in Christ, trusting God? Or have I shrunk back? Remember what he says? That's not who you are, people who shrink back. But maybe that's been happening in my life. And so I think first and foremost, there'll be a, a time of just personal inventory this morning. Where am I at in my faith? Are my, right? Are my convictions rooted in the truth of God's word? kind of like a, a tree. You're not seeing perfection, but are you seeing progress over time? Am I growing and pursuing God with my life? I'm just going to challenge us all to that question this morning, and I want to throw out a second question to anybody here today who isn't a Christian, and maybe you've been under that misconception all this time, that until you get good enough, God won't let you in, and hopefully you've heard from God's word this morning. That's not how he rolls. You'll, if that's your, if that's your game, you're never going to be good enough to get in. Right? You're not. God isn't asking you to get it together and then come see him. What he's saying is come see me and let me help you get it together. God's not saying I need you to be perfectly moral or you don't get to come hang out with me. God's saying actually I, I see all your immorality and actually I see all the, one, all the sins you're hiding too. Br bring that to me. Listen, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to work these things out over time. I want to show you what true heart change feels like, looks like. And so God is calling you to salvation today, to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, his work on your behalf alone, his forgiveness for your sin alone, that by faith, just like the men and women in the Old Testament, by faith you would be commended as righteous. And the way we do that is simply by going to God in prayer, saying, God, I believe. I believe in Jesus I believe that he's died for my sins to give me forgiveness and a way to have a relationship with you. And today I choose to follow. 
If that's you today, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. Would you let somebody know, either myself, somebody on staff, or one of our prayer partners, just let us know that you've made a decision to trust Jesus today so we can pray for you and encourage you. I'm going to ask the worship team if you guys would come back up. Let's take some time to pray together and respond. Father, we thank you for this beautiful reminder of the gospel that saves those who can't save themselves. And that's all of us, God. Each one of us is like, each one of us comes from the most desperate of backgrounds. Each one of us, God, on our own merits, our own good works, our own morality, each one of us fails. There's not a person in this room who deserves to be called a Christian, not a person in this room who deserves to have eternal life with you. And God, you've reminded us this morning that our commendation, our righteousness doesn't come from our performance. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that Jesus is enough. We also thank you this morning that you've reminded us that saving faith has substance. The saving faith produces good works. That saving faith, though not perfect, pursues progress so this morning God we're asking that you would convict us of those areas where we've begun to shift and trust in our own ways over your ways those places in our lives where you've called us to do something or to not do something or called us to let go of something and rather than responding by trusting we've disobeyed God I pray right now for any person here who realizes something that you've asked of them who's walking in disobedience, that today would be a, a day of truly asking the question, do I believe what I say I believe? Do I truly believe the voice of God? Do I truly trust in the leadership of God in my life? Because at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to, Father. God, we pray for any person who doesn't know you that today will be the day of salvation, to come and to know the sweetness of your mercy and forgiveness, to be planted firmly in the ground like a small tree, be given a life that can't be shaken by the afflictions and sufferings of this world. We pray right now that you would call any person here who doesn't know you into a saving relationship. And Father, we lay all this before your feet. Holy Spirit, come move among us, speak to us, convict us, reveal in us. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.